Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today are The Times' very own Molly Hudson and Bill Edgar. Coming up, we'll look ahead to a busy week of Champions League action that sees Tottenham welcome the German giants by Munich. But first, let's get stuck into a brilliant weekend of Premier League action and a five-star Leicester City dismantling a hapless Newcastle United. Now, if you have seen the game today on the front page, you would have seen the headline of Horror Show. And it's not just Hayden's tackle that will make you wince. Newcastle's 5-0 defeat by Leicester was best viewed from behind the sofa. Bill, were Newcastle really that bad or were Leicester simply too good? Um, I think We often say it's a combination. I think it really was, in this case, a combination. Um, yeah, poor old um, Steve Bruce, he's had a... It's so hard to follow um, Rafa Benitez, given that he was so popular at Newcastle, and it, he he walked into the job with the the massive Newcastle fans saying they didn't want him. So already the the the, the mood is very negative. So it's going to be hard. Then the first uh, seven games of the season so far, three of them have been uh, three opponents have been among the big six and now Leicester who are showing big six form so it's not been easy in that sense also they've had to contend with lots of injuries um, um, particularly Matt Ritchie is a crucial player left wing back uh, he's been out for a while and uh, and then they've kept having to change the centre midfield uh, arranged partnership or trio and, and now Hayden's going to be suspended for three games it's going to have to change again um yeah it really didn't didn't look great yesterday i mean uh you know 10 men pouring rain getting absolutely hammered it's uh it was a terrible afternoon they are second bottom after just one win all season should molly newcastle fans be worried then I don't think they've started the season without worry let alone <laughs> after <laughs> yeah. this period of form um and do you know what i think what's really hard is what's the start of that? You know, obviously there was already one all down. Then Isaac Hayden got sent off for that ridiculous challenge that you just can't make in this day and age. But what I think is possibly more worrying for Newcastle United than anything else to worry about is Miguel Almiron and Joe Linton just haven't quite got firing. And what feels very hard is even even if they'd had 11 players, could they realistically have thought about scoring against against Leicester? And that's the problem. You know, even... If your defence isn't that great, if you can't score goals, you know, in this league, you're going to struggle. Mm. And I think that's that's part of the problem. At times, there's, it feels like there hasn't been a real identity about Steve Bruce's Newcastle. It's been a lot of, are we going to play how, how we did with, with Benitez or are we going to try and move on from that? You know, he came in so late in terms of pre-season that he didn't really have time to build his own you know, squad or anything that really resembled his had the identity though? as a manager. And yeah, would would he have even been able to do that? That's that's the, just the that's start the th- of the problems at Newcastle. Yeah, it all starts and ends with Mike Ashley. So mm. until that changes, this is going to be a recurring cycle where it's getting a bit exhausting as well. You know, we keep pouring over how poor they are one week and then they have the odd spirited performance like against Spurs where they, where they you know, they just, demonstrated that they've got some sort of stomach for the fight at least and then they have a performance like this um, and it's just sort of a recurring theme and then are they going to drop back in the championship for a third time under Ashley until he goes 
uh, then this is just going to be a, a sort of recurring cycle about about how poor they are and how sort of little interest he has in in making them better. Well. In that suggestion, then, it's worrying times that will continue for, for Newcastle unless things change. But if you look at the squad bill that they have, what do you think is missing for them? It's hard to really say any part of the team which is which is really which is really strong. It doesn't, where you'd say he doesn't need strengthening there. Benitez sort of gave them a style. It was a fairly defensive style. It wasn't very watchable. I mean, one thing you could say about Bruce is it's slightly more watchable. But uh, had that game been, uh, had Benitez been in charge yesterday and had been 1-0 down, down to 10 men, it might well have ended 1-0 or 2-0. He, he did, he tended to lose to the big six over and over and over again, but it, they were quite narrow wins. He had a way of just kind of limiting the, the damage. Um, now they've been hammered 5-0 psychologically. It's going to be um, very tricky. Um, I mean, uh, Almiron definitely looks like he's got plenty of promise. He's fast, he's skillful, but he seems to go up blind alleys a bit and doesn't link with other teammates. He, you know, he's not scoring or assisting yet. Um, it feels like we've said he's got a lot of potential for yeah. a long wow. time. He's been there a while. He's now, been yeah. doing the right things without yeah. actually... And there must be a reason why he's, he's not mm. finding the net and he's not getting assists. Mm. Mm. And you've mentioned the love, Bill, that Newcastle fans had for Rafa Benitez. So it was always going to be a, a difficult job for whoever came in next. Is it too early to be questioning Steve Bruce's management and, and how long he'll be there for? I don't think it's too early because there's so much sort of acrimony around St James's Park there was from the moment he got the job. Um, that doesn't mean I don't have some sympathy for him because it's a thankless task. I think he knew that when he came in. It's just an opportunity that... As a kind of boyhood supporter, he couldn't he couldn't turn down, and um, but he's walked into un- unenviable circumstances. A squad that really is probably, you know, people that people that watch Newcastle regularly say that they Benitez had a kind of top end championship squad and kept them in the league year after year, and that's still the case. They've they spent a bit more money than usual. You know, Joe Ellington, I think he's shown flashes of promise, but he's playing up front on his own essentially, and you need people to get up there with him. Uh, so I think there will be questions uh, around Bruce fairly soon if they don't get some results, but that doesn't mean it's it's all his fault. I think Bruce doesn't have a good reputation. He, he deserves a better standing in the game. I mentioned in the paper today he's about to become only the sixth person to have played 400 top-flight games and managed in 400 top-flight mm. games. So that's so he's a real kind of giant across the history of English football, but... You know, you wouldn't think that for the way people talk about him. And it's not as if he—I know he's old, but it's not as if the he's failed the last couple of times. The last time he was in the Premier League, he did really well with with uh, Hull. A couple of years with with Hull, and then he got them promoted again when they did go. I thought they were, they were unlucky to go down. Um, and then he got them up again. You know, it's a very small team. He did really well with them, I thought. So, so that's the last evidence you've got of his work in the Premier League. So just to, for him to walk into this job and for the world, not just Newcastle fans, because the rest of the world seem to be laughing at Newcastle for you thought you were going to get this manager or that manager or that player or something, and now you're left with Steve Bruce. You know, it's really unfair on him. But, but if the whole 
if all the certainly if all the Newcastle fans are against him, it's going to be very hard. When when Sam Allardyce went to Newcastle, he had quite a, a decent record of the first over the half season he was there. It wasn't particularly good to watch, but the record was fine. But it was never going to last because they they just didn't like him. Well, at the beginning of the season, most Premier League fans were prepared for another year of dazzling football from Manchester City and Liverpool as the top dogs of England readied themselves to leave the rest in their wake. And so far, that has gone to script. However, few would have put Leicester City down as their closest rivals after seven games. But under Brendan Rodgers, the Foxes have been extremely impressive, culminating in that 5-0 win over Newcastle, which is their biggest ever Premier League win. 14 points it is now from their first seven games, which is two more than they had at this stage back in 2015-16, when, of course, they went on to win the title. Molly, do you think this is the start of something special for, for Leicester under Brendan Rodgers? I think it could be. I think, as Bill said, it was this weekend was a culmination of both Newcastle being pretty poor and Leicester being very good. I think part of where they are on the table is also a culmination of Leicester being very good and other teams that you'd expect to be up there not really being quite there. They've had quite poor starts to the season. So look at your Arsenals, your Uniteds that you'd expect to be to be fighting for that top four. In their absence and where, where they've struggled with various bits and bobs, it's Leicester that have been consistent, consistently good pretty much. Um and I think they've, what they've done is they've they've brought in some really good players. You know, they they broke their transfer transfer record for Yuri Telemans, who has been very good. And I think what they've done is they've they've introduced some youth. Obviously, they lost Harry Maguire, um, but they haven't felt like they've lost him. You know, when when you look at some of the those sort of mid table teams that have lost that big player that's been their standout, it's really affected them. But for Leicester, it hasn't. And I think you know part of that is Brendan Rodgers has come in. You know, Claude Puel didn't have the most amazing time at, at Leicester and Rodgers has come in he seems to have brought a fresh sort of enthusiasm and everyone's together and you know they're, they're playing really good football and it's really good to watch and I mean this weekend those without Madison who's been their best player so yeah I think they're, they're more than they've more than got a chance to stay up there I think particularly with the struggles of the other big teams that you'd normally expect to be up there. It is early days, but only City and Liverpool have accumulated more points than Leicester since Rogers' appointment. So, Greville, can they really upset the usual top four contenders, even top six contenders, to finish in those European places? Absolutely. I think I believe so more and more by the week, really. I think um, there, John, Jonathan Northcroft wrote a great piece on Sunday in the Sunday Times about um, the sort of transition that they've had to go through and sort of almost comparing that to, you know, Manchester United have gone through one since Sir Alex Ferguson's left, Arsenal after Wenger, Chelsea seem to always be in transition. <laughs> um, and Leicester, none of them compare to what Leicester have been through. They won, you know, that fairy tale Premier League winning season three years ago, lost two player of the years in Kante and Mares. Most of their old guard that, that sort of populated that, that title winning team um, and then obviously there was the tragedy of the, the helicopter accident losing their owner um, a year ago nearly a year ago um, but they, they've sort of come through all of that and seem even stronger you know they've got one of the most sort of progressive managers I know he's he's sometimes uh, fun poked at him but he's a, a brilliant manager and speaking to people sort of close to Leicester they've been absolutely blown away by the detail he of his work on the training ground and and you know it was almost instant his transformation of the style of play they've, they've always been Jamie Vardy counter-attacking team deadly in the counter-attack 
and now they're dominating possession. You know, they had like like well over seventy percent or something uh, the other day. So it's the way they have sort of transitioned through that those those last three years has been really really impressive. Great great recruitment, academy players like Chilwell and and uh, Harvey Barnes coming through, and the, the future looks really bright for them. I think. Well, you mentioned Jamie Vardy. Two more goals for him against Newcastle. Takes his uh, tally to five in seven games this season. 14 in 17 under Brendan Rodgers. He's been reborn, I suppose you could say, Bill, under Leicester's new boss. Yes. um, He's, uh, as Gregor mentioned, there have been different styles uh, of play Leicester have had over the past few years. So So now that it's completely different to when they won the title so um Vardy thrived in in that uh, counter-attacking style when they won the title and now he's still uh, they're still able to utilize his his speed when, when they're dominating possession i mean it r- really is a extraordinarily different uh, team uh, now to 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 what four seasons ago now because then they only they were they had i think it was um 42% possession over the whole season when they won the league uh, which is the third least, and now they've they've got uh, I think it's fifty seven percent. So that's the fourth most. So they've they've changed the style around um, completely. Um, and uh, yeah, so we shouldn't be surprised that Rogers has done well. Um, he, he had a fantastic passing style at uh, Swansea that got them promoted. That was really new to the game. It was kind of. Um, short passing around your own half um you know taking chances it was a real real eye opener to see that style of play and it worked because he got them promoted then he went to liverpool it had one season when they came up with some of the most exhilarating uh football i've ever seen when they just missed out on the league they went to celtic and he, he won seven domestic trophies out of sevens. I mean, he couldn't have done any better there. So, um, you know, it shouldn't be too... Uh, we shouldn't be too surprised that he's done well. Um, Leicester did have... It's not like... However, it's not as though he's plucked it out of nowhere. Leicester did have uh, potential before he came. They did last season, uh, three times under Puel. They, they played Liverpool twice, Manchester City once, and they matched them. They were as good as those, uh, those giants over three games. So... Um, Puel was able to get this sort of performance out out of them occasionally, but just nothing like as uh, nothing like as consistent enough. Whereas uh, Rogers is doing it each week, and they've not deserved to lose any game this season, and they're they're looking really good. Even without their most creative outlet in James Madison, Molly, they they showed their strength in depth. Should teams fear playing Leicester now? Yeah, I think they should. I think um, you know, there's there's always been that. That sense of you play the big, big teams that you, you know your Arsenal's, your Cities, your Liverpool's, teams like that, and you fear them. But actually, maybe what you should fear more, particularly this season, is actually those teams that on their day have the ability to beat you. And what Leicester have done so well, as as Bill's just said, they've instead of being that on the day they can beat your team, they've managed to drag that out over a series of games, and that's what makes them so dangerous. They've always had those players. You know, someone like Vardy can score against anyone. But what, what they've now done is is brought in players like Tillemans, like Madison, that really bring that creativity and get the ball to him as much as anything. Um, and that's really important for Leicester. And I think you look at that team from back to front. I mean, Kasper Schmeichel was a, a brilliant goalkeeper. 
and there's not any really obvious weaknesses there and you know that should be feared because teams like that that have good players all over the pitch uh, are always going to cause problems is the one negative i suppose about leicester gregor is that maybe they're too reliant on vardy and what happens to them if they were to lose him to injury yeah i think i think rogers has even sort of admitted as much i think he's admitted that although he's transformed i think they play 100 more passes a game than than under puel which is an amazing transformation um, but he still admits that they, they're a little bit one-dimensional in, in terms of getting the ball in behind the defence to Vardy or Vardy creating space for... We saw that for the goals yesterday. Often he peeled off, and especially the first goal, um, and the, the full-back uh, tore forward and, and, and struck it, struck a left foot shot from outside the box. So there's still... I think he's, he's admitting that. He's, he keep, Every time he's asked about whether they can break the top four, he says that's lot of improvement to be done you know this is a work in progress but I think he actually means it I think he he wants to dominate as mu- the ball as much as Guardiola and, and, and Klopp you know he wants to he wants to be the type of team that is that dominates the football against against almost any opposition and that's his sort of that's his vision for them that's what he works at every day in training um uh, yeah, I think I think the future is is looking really good for for Leicester. So it's five goals in seven, as as I was saying, for Jamie Vardy. Bill, we have spoken previously on this podcast about Vardy stepping away from international football maybe too soon. Do you think England need him for the Euros? I think if he was available, then he might well have been picked in the the squad for the Euros. Yeah, he, he's he hasn't completely uh, dismissed his the possibility of being available to England. He just said, I don't want to be travelling, you know, uh, to Czech Republic, Bulgaria and all the qualifiers and playing now and again. But but if I'm if you actually need me, I'm first choice because Kane is injured and, say, Rashford is injured, then um, it's kind of OK, he's, he's hinted at that. So, um, so on that basis, I suspect he won't be... He won't come back. But um, on his present form... Then um, you'd you'd certainly have him in the the squad, yeah. You'd imagine that Gareth Southgate's got his finger hanging over that Jamie Vardy mm. call button, um, <laughs> but obviously, as you say, yes, he he has sort of say said he he's, he'll step away from international football right now. But with the Euros, as we know, it's been spread across the continent. But there, the semi-finals, the finals being played in England. Do you not think that is something that could play into his mind about stepping back into the international fold, Molly? I think it's an interesting one because what is probably displayed by his start to the season is actually it was probably the right thing to do. He knows his own body more than anybody else and he's just as fit and just as quick as he has been he's in quicker. previous he got seasons. The, he registered his fastest speed test really? and stuff in, in pre-season this year, yeah. Which is crazy. <laughs> um, so in terms of that, as Bill said, you know, he probably could make the England squad and I'm sure Gareth Southgate would be happy to have him. But actually, in terms of the longevity of the rest of his club career particularly, you know, maybe the right thing for him is to focus on Leicester. And I think only he knows that. And, you know, again, as Bull said, if England were in a situation where Kane or Rashford were injured, then I think he'd be, you know, more more than adequate replacement for them. But, I, you know, would there be any point in, say, he's part of a squad and Kane is there, Kane's going to start when you think of the culmination of the travel and the preparation and everything that comes around being in the England camp is he better off just staying at Leicester and if it because you know he's not however good he is for Leicester 
Kane is still going to be there or thereabouts, as is Rashford, and he's not going to be starting every single game. So you can understand why he's thinking for his career at his age, the best thing to do is actually to prioritise Leicester. Well, just one last question then on Leicester. Brendan Rodgers returns to Anfield for the first time since his sacking in 2015 when Leicester are the visitors on Saturday. Gregor, could he be the first manager to lead a side to win over Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool in the Premier League since, what, early January, is it? I'm sure he'd love to be. Look, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they've got as much chance as as anyone except Manchester City on current form. Because, like I say, they they're they're not someone who's going to turn up and park the bus and try and like hit Liverpool in the break or anything like that. They're going to go there and try and uh, dominate the football as much as Liverpool do. So I'm sure it'll make for an exciting game. Liverpool just seem to be a team in in the kind of form at the moment where. The, they don't have to play their best to get to get wins. And we saw that again at the weekend against Sheffield United. Well, Liverpool were 1-0 winners at Bramall Lane this weekend after a goalkeeping error from Dean Henderson allowed the ball to trickle into the net. Molly, you were at the game and uh, you've written a piece in the game today comparing the, the management styles of Wilder and, and Jurgen Klopp. I think it's an interesting one because I... As I said in the piece, I think if you look at all of the teams in the Premier League and you think of their relationship with the club and the manager, you probably think of Liverpool and you think of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool and you think of Sheffield United and you think of Chris Wilder because that's the kind of stamp they've actually put on these clubs. They've got a real identity. And now those identities are actually very different and they're both paying off for those clubs. Um, Obviously, Jurgen Klopp has... He's been quite funny. I think he described himself as like a bit of a serial killer look when he's um, when he's when he's on the touchline and things like that. But he's actually he has probably gone for a bit of the arm around the shoulder approach to some of his players. You know, he's he's he hasn't really publicly criticised him in that way. But I mean, then again, he's had such a great run. He's very rarely needed to. Um, you know, Allison's come in and been such a solid goalkeeper. And you know, those kind of errors that that played them with Carrius and Mignolet. They haven't been there. So in a way, I guess he hasn't been in that position. I think what what is difficult, if you if you look at Chris Wilder after that game, and, you know, I've watched that game, and Sheffield United probably deserved at least a point, easily could have got the win on another day. You know, if Klopp was in that position, and they were playing, say, Real Madrid or Barcelona in the Champions League, and the goalkeepers then drop the ball, they've lost 1-0, it becomes a bigger thing. I think what was so difficult with Wilder is that he was just being honest. And there's nothing he could do that's going to make Dean Henderson feel any better. Him saying to the press, oh, it was just a mistake. Nobody nobody thinks about it. It doesn't matter. You know, that's not going to make a difference. Dean Henderson knows what he did and he'll be absolutely devastated, you know, to watch that ball literally go through you, trickle over the net in such a way that he looked over his shoulder and could see it going in. Like, there's nothing worse than that as a goalkeeper. But he will know that. There's, no, there's nothing... You know, Wilder's criticism, if you want to call it that, mm. it's not going to make him feel any worse than he already did. And I think it's actually probably quite refreshing that Wilder is able to say that and is, to be honest, yes, look, he's probably <laughs> going to have a quite difficult start of the week. But at the end of the day, he's their keeper. They rely on him week in, week out, and he'll learn from it. Well, Wilder said this off that error then by Henderson. If he wants to play for the top teams, he wants to play for England, then he needs to do better. He needs to concentrate more. It is a disappointing day for him. I'm not going to put my arms around him. Simply, he needs to do better. Gregor, I don't know how you would feel if the manager came out and spoke about 
you like that? Is that the best way to handle these sorts of situations in your eyes? Well, I, I, did I ever mention I played for Chris Wilder? <laughs> <laughs> you might have done. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> um, the one thing I've got to say is that, like, it's not an act. <laughs> this <laughs> is genuinely this, him. He says that in the changing is. room as well. And it's not like he'll be going in and hammering Dean Henderson because he knows he's been a great player for him, great goalkeeper. But you'll just see it how it, how it is. And that's, you know, what footballers throughout the ages have said, <laughs> what do you look for most? You look for honesty in the manager. So if the manager comes out and publicly kind of is scathing about you and you disagree or you think, you know, that's a bit, that's a bit much, that's a bit harsh, you know, then, then you can have some issues with that. But Dean Henderson can have no complaints, <laughs> you know. It was a howler. Mm. And he said it to his face, he said it in the changing room. Um, and he said the same thing to the to the press. He can have no complaints about that whatsoever. So it's all about personality, and that's who that's who Chris Wilder is. And he actually, I think it affects the players he signs as well. He'll sign players who he thinks can deal with him. Mm-hmm. He'll he won't sign a shrinking violet. He won't sign. He you know he character is important for him. Basically, he likes big bold often northern characters <laughs> when I was at Northampton he's, there was like a northern invasion you know <laughs> everyone driving down the M1 every day so he likes he likes he likes his he likes to see him on the pitch basically and that's yeah. what Sheffield United are so it's it's working I think part, part of the reason he said it was to he wanted to ram home the point to to his team that they deserved a draw I don't don't think uh, you, you know, it was inevitable you're going to lose to Liverpool this way or that way, however, you're going to lose. He's saying, no, he didn't need, had it not been for that mistake, they'd have got a draw, they would have deserved a draw. Um, so, so, so you know, take responsibility for your mistakes. And, and he didn't, I, I think by, by kind of focusing on that, he, he was just, he wanted to say, you've got, when you play the, another big six team next time they don't have an inferiority complex it was only a mistake you should that definitely shouldn't have happened that deprived you of a a point that you deserved Mm. i suppose what is said in the dressing room and then what is said publicly can obviously be two different things if you were in your normal working life away from football let's say so you here at the times or wherever anyone works if your manager your boss came out publicly in front of your uh, co-workers or to people that work around you or even just to the general public who are around we'd be very damning of that so why can managers get away with that well, football is not like any other industry really is it um and it's a public you know it's, it's in the public profile anyway everyone else saw it everyone saw you know as i said before it's not there's no gray areas about this this one i actually thought he was he's been harsher in the past you know there's been games where people have said in this this season you know so far they've been brilliant in most games and often the the interviewer will say you, you must be really proud of and he'll go no I'm not I'm not here for pride you know I want mm. I want the three points we can't be sort of the nearly men that's what he always says you know don't be nearly men so it's no act um and he can he can actually he can be quite brutal <laughs> he <Wow>. can he, <laughs> no he can he can if he thinks it's it's required, he can be. He can, he'll he'll see how how it is. Does he then, in a way, know every player's? Per- you, I know you've already said that he tends to pick players that are like him in his squad. Let's say, but obviously that's not always no, going not, to happen. No, um, so would he be aware of which players can necessarily take the public criticism 
than others. Would he take that on board? I think he would. Yeah, he's not. You know, he's he's not daft either. And you know, anyone who's watched Dean Anderson play would would sort of know that he's a confident lad. He's got a bit of a swagger about him. He even sort of taunts the fans sometimes behind his goal. Uh, so he'll be fine. I'm sure they'll be taking the mickey out of him in training today. I'm sure that's the sort of atmosphere it'll be. Um, but he, he's Chris Wilder can he he can be very brutal. I mean, he, there was one one instance when I was at Northampton when we lost we lost against Plymouth Argyle. I think it was. I can't remember the score, but it, it was our Christmas do our Christmas sort of party the next uh, that weekend, and he said, "Not having it. You're in tomorrow." at 8am and we were running around the pitch oh so the day after the day we should have been on our Christmas party he had us in in the morning running around the pitch oh, no. that was when we were at a real low point but you know he's the boss he's always the boss um, and there's no no t- like two ways about that you know it uh, so if the manager says something if he says something like that in public you're not going to say anything about you're it you're not allowed to go out for drinks later that <laughs> night <laughs> we might have got one or two <laughs> <laughs> It's time now to have a look at the championship and why no one is able to hold on to the lead at the top, Gregor. Uh, West Brom are the leaders now after winning at QPR, ending the R's run of four wins in a row. Slavin Bilic's side ran out 2-0 winners thanks to goals from Costa Pereira and the 18-year-old defender Nathan Ferguson, who Bilic compared to Declan Rice after the game. He, of course, managed Rice at West Ham. And it appears there's no stopping Lee Bowyer's Charlton as well, who beat Leeds 1-0 at the Valley to rise into the playoff spots as they dream of back-to-back promotions. It was Leeds' first defeat on the road this season, which drops them to fourth and level on 17 points with Charlton. But, Gregor, as ever with the Championship, is still wide open. Yeah, I was just looking at the table and three points separating the top nine. (laughs) So, you um, you know, a few weeks ago we were thinking Leeds might run away with it, but Leeds have sort of facing the same problems as they did last season um, dominating games I think they had 72% possession uh, against Charlton 38 crosses to Charlton's 7 uh, 518 passes to Charlton's 213 19 shots to Charlton's 3 but only 3 were on target and all of Charlton's were on target so that kind of that sums up Leeds that leads in a nutshell just now they they hammer almost any team they they come up against, but they can't put the ball in the back of the net, and you know their goals to sort of chance ratio is 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 awful. Uh, but Lee Boyer is is doing a remarkable job at Charlton. He's don't know don't know how to lose really, um, and it, I th- we were talking off here. I think Lee Boyer he's probably not getting the credit he deserves, mm. perhaps because of his sort of past. He's had a few misdemeanors over his career. Um, He's done a remarkable job at Charlton, getting getting them promoted from League One with all the sort of off-field acrimony as well. Um, so that was a fantastic result for them. And QPR, obviously, having won four games in a row, I think really they might have been in a slightly false position. They they've got a lot of young players, Eberichi Easy and Elias Chair, probably the leading lights, the young players uh, for that team. And for the first time in a in a while, they've got. A decent front pairing in Jordan Hugel and uh, Naki Wells, so I'm sure they'll have a better season than they have in in recent seasons. But uh, West Brom, I've got one of the best. Squ- they're a bit like Fulham. They've got one of the best squads in the, in the division, 
it's just about making it click. Um, and if they do, then they should really they should be right up there. And it's a great day for, as you said, for Nathan Ferguson, who is a centre half really, but he, he's been played at left back and and um, he's really impressed. I think the goalkeeper might have had a bit of disappointment about that <laughs> about that. But <laughs> not another um, goalkeeping error. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, they look they look really really good. So. Um, it's still very, very hard to call at the top of the championship, yeah. Yeah, all going very well for West Brom, who are unbeaten in the championship as things stand. You were due to go to that game, but you had to take a different uh, route somewhere else. Yeah, I went to went to see Derby um, play Birmingham after the sort of the events of, of last week there, um, and it was a much needed win for for Derby. They they hadn't won since the opening game of the season. They hadn't won at home at all. Um, and they scored after 86 seconds, uh, which kind of raised the roof, and they really, they really needed that. You know, it was almost it was a bit, bit of a cathartic sort of roar from the crowd. Um, uh, it's, it's Derby. Derby have had a really tough time. It's sort of on the field as well with with Koku since since Frank Lampard left in the summer, took all the loan signing, all the loan signings left back to back to the Premier League, um, and they've really had a difficult start. Uh, under under Koku, so um, been difficulties on and off the field there, um, but that was a big win and and very much needed. Molly, while we have you here, we should talk about the women's Super League and actually a concerning story emerging from the weekend's action. Liverpool have reported chance made during Saturday's uh, defeat away to Manchester United to the FA. These chants we we won't repeat, but they are in reference to the Hillsborough disaster. This sort of these sorts of chants that we're hearing, are they becoming more and more prevalent in the women's game? Um, I think there is a change in the atmosphere at women's games. I think this weekend and these particular chants were something very new and something very unwanted that we don't want to be hearing mm. at all. Um, so almost putting them aside as something that never should be heard at any football ground anywhere the actual atmosphere of women's football is changing and now that is partly due to an increase in attendances off the back of the World Cup, but it's also come from the introduction of Manchester United back into women's football after their very long absence. Um, what they've done is they've brought they've brought in a, the fan group called the Barmy Army and they have, basically they're a group of men's football fans that have really loved the idea of there being a women's team and they've they've came along and, you know, they have recognised the fact that women's football has a crowd of a lot of children. It's a lot more family-based, friendlier. The rivalries aren't really there. But, you know, to some extent, that's because this was actually the first United-Liverpool game in the top flight there has ever been. Um, so the rivalries are at a completely different stage to men's football. And I think what has ruffled some feathers with people that have been in the women's game a long time is that these United fans have kind of come in and brought those rivalries with them so when they played um, Arsenal also up in Lee Sports Village the other week there was you know the chant was same old Arsenal always cheating now you look at the Arsenal women's team reigning champions of the WSL not like that at all yes they're from Arsenal and yes I understand if you're a Manchester United fan you're not going to like Arsenal and Liverpool and that's completely fine but there's also that element of recognising that this is a different team and you know, what part of what we need to recognise that I'm a strong advocate of is these are professional athletes 
And as such, they deserve criticism and they deserve us to say what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. And you can hate them. Go for it. But stay the right side of that line. And this weekend, that line was crossed. And I hope it's never crossed again in women's football. I hope it's never crossed again in men's football because we don't need that. You know, you can have an atmosphere without that. But that is what women's football needs to be aiming for, which is so difficult, is to bring those men's fans in, but not bring in the hostile environment that you can at times get in the Premier League. Because you've got to remember, there are so many children and families attending. Well, that was rightly said, Molly. I like that a lot. Should we talk about the positives from this weekend in the sense of the second largest attendance uh, was uh, made at the uh, London Stadium? A crowd of 24,790 saw Tottenham beat West Ham 2-0. 2-0. Elsewhere, results-wise, Chelsea beat Bristol City 4-0. Uh, Manchester City and Arsenal maintain their 100% winning starts. Steph Horton scored a free kick as City won 1-0 at Everton, uh, who dropped their first points. And Jordan Nobbs was on the score sheet for Arsenal. Uh, so she made uh, a return from a long-term knee injury in that 4-0 win over Brighton. So I mentioned that second-largest attendance, Molly. Do you think that experiment of playing some of these WSL fixtures in men's stadiums is working. I'm trying to get away from the negativity. <laughs> no, just ask me that. Um, I think what is difficult is there's always a caveat with every big attendance like this. Um, firstly, it wasn't sold out, but that's unrealistic at this stage to expect the London Stadium to be sold out. The weather was grim. It's not the greatest stadium in terms of fan interaction or feeling like you're anywhere near the game from the press box. I practically needed binoculars to see anything. Um, and I think 24,790, that's not a bad attendance at all. But what, as I say, the caveat to that is you're not going to get that every week. And I think it's important to not expect that every week because that's too quick. That's growing it too quick. If you suddenly have 24,000 people every week, it's just not going to work and it's not achievable. So what they need to focus on is is getting those, I mean, we spoke to Jack Sullivan, the managing director at West Ham uh, in the build-up to this one. And he was obviously massively conscious of getting these same fans back to Rush Green. And actually, they've had pretty good attendances. I think they beat um, Arsenal's attendance, actually, on the opening weekend. But part of the issue is, yes, these tickets were free for children, £1 for concessions and £2 for general admission. These are still professional athletes, and you're saying they're worth £2 for general admission. Now, you, you wouldn't dream of doing that in other professional sports. And the problem at the moment with these big, big stadiums is in order to get the people there, that, yes, we want to get them to see these players, That's that the price and the value of what they're seeing is being sacrificed in order to get people in. Now, that's fine on this occasion because this is the first time women have ever played at the London Stadium. It's the first time West Ham have done a, a game like this in a big stadium. But if we do this again in the future and if there's more of these at Stamford Bridge and Manchester City that we've talked about on this pod before, mm. they need to value the players because you, you can't just be making it this big event, this one-day, one-off thing. Actually, these players are playing week in, week out. They're professional athletes. The standard is there now. The standard of the football is very good and it's massively improved over the years. And, you know, we need to be starting respecting that now. But obviously, as we always say, the first stage, the first step to that is selling out your regular stadium. And we're not even near that at the moment. So that's what needs to be... That needs to be more marketed. If you think of how much advertising and marketing there was for this game and the Stamford Bridge game and the Manchester City at the Etihad, if we did that for each of the games, 
made clear how to get to King's Meadow for Chelsea, mm-hmm. how to get to, to Rush Green for West Ham, then you'd probably increase your attendances and then you'd have that argument to have the stronger base fan group to then put it in a bigger stadium. And I think that's what needs to be the priority at the moment. Uh, and just finally, the draw for the Champions League has taken place. Uh, Arsenal, unseeded for this one. <sighs> Slavia Prague, easy draw that one? Yes, is the short answer to that. <laughs> it it could have been so much worse. The UEFA coefficients have been massively skewed this year because Arsenal are a massive club in women's football but have been absent from the Champions League and a huge part of the seeding is whether or not you've played in the Champions League in recent seasons. So they're unseeded, therefore could have faced Lyon, the best club in the world, could have faced Wolfsburg, Bayern Munich, Barcelona. Avoided them all, got Slavia Prague, they're going to be delighted. Um, but then Manchester City, who are seeded, despite finishing lower in the league last season than Arsenal, have got the unseeded Atletico Madrid, who they lost to last season. Tony Duggan's gone there, obviously England international. And that is a really, really difficult game and actually the hardest unseeded team they could have faced because obviously they can't play Arsenal because you can't play the two teams in the same country. So Arsenal will be the significantly happier <laughs> of the two after that. From the Women's Champions League to the Men's Champions League. And the second round of matches get underway this week. On Tuesday, Tottenham host German champions Bayern Munich. Manchester City are at home to Dinamo Zagreb. Bill, we know it's been a a difficult spell of late for Tottenham. Focusing on matters in North London, how big a challenge are the the German side for for Tottenham? They're top of the league, as usual, in, uh, in Germany. Tottenham at least beat Southampton at the weekend and of course ended it with 10 men. I, f- I felt in the through the second half and throughout the second half they had 10 men. I felt they they could have done with a bit more of control of the match given they were a big six team at home to a, a non-big six team. You'd, even with 10 men you'd expect a bit more uh, control but uh, even so they got the win. Robert Lewandowski's still, still there. He's uh, scored eight matches in a row for Bayern. Um, I mean, if Tottenham do lose, I wouldn't say that's th- that shouldn't uh, mean they don't get through, even though they drew away to Olympiacos. As long as they win at home to Olympiacos and beat Red Star Belgrade in the those two games against them, that should be enough to get them through. Certainly it'll be a good test of, to see where Tottenham are because they've produced so many good performances against the big teams, Real Madrid, Barcelona... Dortmund, Juventus over the past couple of years in the Champions League. So let's see um, if they can repeat it this week. Well, I wonder if Tottenham will be hoping that Bayern's preparations for the game have, have been sort of thrown up in the air, mainly down to their president, Molly, who's been declaring that the club will not be sending any players on German international duty if Manuel Neuer is dropped. This is all down to the fact that uh, the Bayern stopper's position in the national side is under threat from the Barcelona keeper, Mark andre Tustegen. Supposedly, the two keepers have had a falling out with Tustegen suggesting to the German manager, Joachim Löw, to drop Neuer, who is also the German captain. And as I say, the Bayern president is now declaring that no Bayern Munich player will head on international duty with Germany. This is all very bizarre. Is it even possible? No, it just feels like one of those cases where he just put his foot in his mouth and it's now, not only is it a ridiculous statement because, I mean, what national team wouldn't want the choice of Manuel Neuer or Marc-Andre Ter Stegen? I mean, they've, they've got a joy of riches there that pretty much any 
any nation in the world would would be jealous of. But also, it's not going to be able to do that. Like, no Bayern players playing for Germany just because <laughs> your your captain is. It's not like Tostegen isn't an incredible goalkeeper as well. Like they're both incredible goalkeepers, and therefore you can't imagine one is always going to be deputy to the other because that's never going to work. They're in the same way as any other player on the pitch would be rotated. I know it's not always the same case for goalkeepers. But in that particular situation where they're both so good and equally good, it's just a very bizarre statement, isn't it? And I think, you know, you'd like to think Neuer's more than experienced enough to not that not let that affect him. But it just feels like a lot of empty voice that didn't really need to be said. James Gearbrand wrote a good piece a good column about this on Saturday. Well it's partly about this on Saturday. Seeing it kind of feeds into I feel that super clubs in in Europe, throughout Europe, there's a kind of cohort of elite clubs who kind of feel like they can do what they want. <laughs> and it was a stupid comment, you know, it's, it's never going to happen. But it feeds into that sort of idea. And even it was came, he compared it to the fact that Manchester United, you know, posted record uh, turnover, I think it was. And on the pitch, they're an absolute disaster. But it's not it's not affecting them in sort of financial terms or in the sort of level of support across the world. And just there's a cohort of clubs that really, what does it take for them to, to fall below <laughs> that, that elite <laughs> level? Um, you have to be pretty confident that you're, you're a big club in Germany to, to be saying something like that, to be questioning the national team, you know? It's curious that Neuer and Testagen have had this falling out because um, about 15 years ago, uh, uh, Oliver Kahn and Jens Lehmann two, were the two big... Germany goalkeepers and they were slagging each other off in public as well. <laughs> There's obviously something about German goalkeepers. You, uh, and I'm going further back. Um, Lothar Matthäus and Stefan Effenberg would have a public row. It just doesn't seem to happen in in England. I mean, players, teammates have fallen out a lot, but it tends to be much quieter. It's not played out in public, but but in Germany and often Bayern players, it's uh, it's there for all to see. Just to wrap up the Tuesday night fixtures with regards to the English sides, Manchester City host Dinamo Zagreb. They got off to a winning start, beating Shakhtar Donetsk at 3-0. Uh, Gregor, is this going to be six points out of six? Yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, Zagreb won 4-0 in their opening game against Atlanta. So you would sort of, you know, you look at that and think this might be their biggest test, but I, don't, I think they'd lost 11 group games in a row before that win. And... They've not qualified, you know, in all six previous Champions League groups they've been in. So this is likely to be another procession. And when Pep Guardiola can rest Aguero and and the two Silvers at the weekend for the game for the game against Everton, it just sort of shows the embarrassment of riches that he has. And I'm sure we'll see those guys. Although someone like Riyad Mahrez is going to be hard to drop the form he's in at the moment. So it's not really dropping either. It's just they, at this time of year these these group games are. As we say, they're a procession, so he's got to rotate his squad as as much as he can, as best as he can, while making sure that they they, they get through as group winners. And then on Wednesday night, Liverpool, the European Cup holders, of course, host RB Salzburg and Lille take on Chelsea. It is a big match day too for Liverpool and Chelsea, then having both lost their opening games to Napoli and Valencia, respectively. That defeat, Bill, for Liverpool, their only defeat, 
so far this season. They'll be looking to bounce back straight away at home. You would expect them to beat Salzburg at home quite easily, but Salzburg had a um, a huge win on the the, the first day against Genk. Um, be interesting to see if uh, Erling Haaland plays. I know he's been ill over the weekend, so it's touch and go. He got a hat trick in the first game, and he's um, the son of Alfinger Haaland. So I'd be tempted to get uh, Roy Keane in for the day to have a <laughs> have a secret comment on uh, Haaland's son after. Well, wicked, <laughs> but I'm sure Roy Keane would would be very reticent, wouldn't you know, as usual. But um, but yeah, uh, you'd have to expect Liverpool will um, overturn the as it were the their first day defeat away to Napoli and get the the first points. At this stage of the the Champions League, as Gregor was saying about Tuesday night's games, it's it can be a bit of a procession, and part of that is just because it feels as though the challenge is so hard for some of these teams. So Paul Paul Joyce um, wrote a great piece in the game today, and the headline says it all. I think. We think like Klopp, it's just Liverpool do everything a bit better. And that is what these teams are facing all over the pitch, these English teams. And it's because of finances, it's a lot lot of that. They're just that little bit better all over the pitch. And, you know, what we've seen from, from Liverpool and Chelsea is that actually they're not infallible. These things can happen, they can lose. And, you know, there's as good a chance as any, particularly when it's midweek and, you know, you've had big... Big Premier League games. I mean, Liverpool they get much of a rest against Sheffield United. That was that was certainly touch and go at points. So it's not like they've had their feet up in the same way that Manchester City perhaps have, where they've got such a big squad and such a wealth of riches that they can rest players. Liverpool didn't. Liverpool obviously had that front three that actually struggled against Sheffield United. Um, so they haven't had the ability to rest players like that. Um, so I think that does play a part. I think you know it's not impossible. I think, again, the English teams will go into its favourites. I don't think Salzburg will, will sit back in this game. From reading that piece as well, you know, their American coach, Jesse Marsh, he's a bit of a Jurgen Klopp disciple, you know, gig impressing, front foot football, young team. As it said in the piece, I think only six of 27 players they have are, are over 24. And Manny and, and Keita both, both sort of rose to prominence there as well. They've won the first seven league matches. Uh, but obviously there's still a huge gulf but I think they're not a team that are going to go and, and, and sit back at Anfield I think they'll take the game to Liverpool so I don't know how that'll work out mind you <laughs> <laughs> And then just a word Bill on Chelsea who head to France then as I was saying to, to take on Lille they lost that opening game at home to Valencia do we see any similar problems that they could encounter in France? Um, yeah I think Chelsea um are by far the most at risk of the four English teams of not getting through, um, having lost at home to Valencia, albeit they were a bit unlucky. But they've got two games against Ajax, which uh, and, and you might think Ajax are will be an e- a softer touch now that Matthias de Ligt and Frankie de Jong have, have left in the summer. But uh, Ajax were uh, <laughs> seemingly just as good in the first game against Lille, won 3-0 and full of confidence and all the the tricks they were showing, uh, you know, Harlem Globetrotters kind <laughs> of uh, approach that they were showing last year that won so many uh, so many fans. Um, so that's not going to be hard. And, and Lille themselves, I think, are fourth in the French League. So Chelsea really could do with the very least a, a draw. Um, otherwise, they may struggle. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Molly Hudson and Bill Edgar. 
Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday looking back on a busy week of Champions League action. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.